You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to The Guidepost. Willie Goldsmith here, and glad to have you with us. Before we get into our special guest today, um, I want to quickly introduce our newest member of the ASGA team, Will Poston, who joins us as a fisheries policy consultant. So welcome, Will. Thanks for having me, Willie. Yeah, super excited to be on The Guidepost and uh, to help ASGA further its mission of sustainable uh, fisheries through conservation. Right on, buddy. Well, we're glad to have you. Will is an avid angler, uh, has experience working in fisheries on Capitol Hill, uh, also has done a lot of outdoor and conservation writing. So really happy to have him. Um, for folks who are turning tuning in to hear uh, Tony's sultry baritone voice, I am sorry to inform you that you'll have to wait until next week's episode. So getting to the topic at hand today, uh, we're going to be tackling a pretty thorny issue that I think most folks listening are familiar with, and that is offshore wind. Uh, There has been a lot happening on the offshore wind development front uh, on the East Coast in particular, but really all around the country. And so, you know, lots going on, lots of information out there um, from the media, from from various groups as well. And we just kind of wanted to take an opportunity to bring an expert on and, you know, really get a sense of, of what's going on with wind, what are some of the major concerns that folks have, and and how recreational anglers can also be a part of the process. So thrilled to have with us today, Doug Crystal, who is a fishery policy analyst with NOAA Fisheries. So welcome, Doug. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the talk. Right on. Well, we're, we're thrilled to have you. And before we get into the into the meat of offshore wind, Doug, I think, you know, it would be great if listeners could hear a bit about you and, you know, important to also emphasize, you know, you're not a you're not a wind analyst, right? You're a fisheries policy analyst. So you you really come at this issue from a fisheries perspective, right? Right. Fish first, wind second. Um, <laughs> right now, I'm kind of splitting my time between fisheries management and wind policy. So I serve right now as the fisheries lead for the Greater Atlantic Regional uh, Wind Team. And so my role is really just to uh, inform the wind development process about fisheries issues make sure that the constituents have an opportunity to provide input whenever possible and uh, advocate for fisheries conservation and and impact analysis throughout the process. And so what I try to do is I try to reach out to various fishing groups, individuals, anglers, commercial party charter vessels, and try to get their input to, to get the most information on the table and into consideration as possible. And then when the documents come, I review those projects for fisheries implications and implications on the survey and, and monitoring efforts as well. That, so that sounds brutal. Uh, knowing the volume, <laughs> knowing the size of some of these documents out there, uh, that is a uh, sounds like an extremely challenging and uh, and difficult task. So uh, kudos Doug, to you for taking. Doug, that how on. many <laughs> how many thousands of pages did you read last week? Uh, I average about six to 800 pages a day. So depending (laughs) on the timeline, these projects are many thousands of pages. And so I've mastered the art of skim reading for content. (laughs) Yeah. Like a control F in your brain sort of thing. Right. Um, for sure. Oh my goodness. Um, awesome. And just out of curiosity, Doug, I, I think you're, you're a hunter and a fisherman too. Is that right? 
I am. I grew up in Pennsylvania, so I have been fishing and you know, hunting my entire life. My father used to take me up to Canada every year and on his bass boat and spend hours catching pike and largemouth bass. So I didn't have too much exposure when I was a kid to saltwater angling, but I try to take my son out on party charter boats and head boats and uh, shoreside uh, angling for whatever stripers and bluefish and whatever comes our way. So he loves it. Because um, you're up you're up in Salem, right? You're up right near Gloucester. Yeah, yeah. So we, we try to get out as much as possible. Um, taking a fishing trip to upstate New York next week. So looking forward to that with my father and nephews. So it's going to be fun. Yeah. Keeping the tradition going. Awesome. Well, glad to hear it. Glad you're going to be able to, to, to take some time away from the uh, the monstrosities of the uh, PDFs that you've been looking at. So, um, <laughs> so Doug, I'm wondering if we can step back just a little bit, right? So if you're a fisherman, you know, you're seeing articles in the news all the time about different projects and different stages, and there's just a lot going on. You know, we know that Vineyard Wind is Vineyard Wind One um, has been approved and that project is moving forward. Um, but there's also just so much going on outside of that. And I'm wondering if you can just kind of give us a, a sense of the state of play, you know, kind of the broader context that's really driving all of this offshore wind development that we've especially heard more and more about over the last six months. Sure. Yeah. As you all know, and your listeners are really well aware, uh, climate change is an impact that's affecting our fisheries and our coasts. And so the development of offshore wind energy is an effort to address some of the climate change issues and pursue renewable energy in a sustainable and, and thoughtful way. And so the administration right now is advocating a, a pretty ambitious timeline to get 30 gigawatts of wind energy in the offshore arena. And so to do that requires a lot of projects. And as many of your listeners will know, there's a number of projects all the way up and down the Atlantic coast and in the Gulf of Mexico, as well as on the Pacific coast. So there's a number of projects going on. Um, to achieve those goals, each project's gonna have to achieve a certain amount of energy production. And, and to do that requires a lot of projects, uh, given the, the ambitious goals. Um, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management is the federal agency that's coordinating that effort. And they get assistance from a number of agencies like the National Marine Fisheries Service, the Army Corps of Engineers, Coast Guard, et cetera. And collectively, the other agencies form supporting roles. So we provide input and expertise and data that helps BOEM make informed decisions about how to minimize the impacts to the natural resources while maximizing the wind energy output. And to achieve those goals, uh, you know, there's a number of projects right now. I think we have 17 active projects. There's a couple of areas under identification, so they may develop into projects, uh, including eight in the New York Bight area. So we've got a number of, of projects under various stages of review. As you noted, Vineyard Wind has been recently approved. We are in the final stretch of reviewing and considering the approval of South Fork Wind. And then we have six other projects that just started review. So as Will indicated earlier, I'm reading a lot of documents in a really fast pace. Um, these projects are about 30% along the overall goal by 2030. And collectively, the Atlantic, roughly speaking, could achieve about 20 or, or I'm sorry, 80% of the, the 30 gigawatt goal. But keep in mind, the, the goal is a national goal. And so the Atlantic is not going to have all the responsibility for it and some of the other um, 
regions will also contribute with their active projects. Um, so we're just trying to do our best to keep our heads above water, make sure that the, the documents are well informed, and then support BOEM and other agencies in providing the fisheries and, and natural marine resource information they need to make informed decision and conduct the analysis. Doug, you kind of touched on like how some of these projects, you know, all up and down the seaboard are on various stages. Um, just for, for, you know, our listeners and stuff, could you maybe like briefly touch on um, the various stages, like and how it progresses from, you know, start to finish? Yeah, it's, it's a very complicated and involved process with a bunch of steps. And it takes years from start to finish. The, when the Projects are first initially identified either by BOEM or a developer can initiate a project and then they, they do a call for information, which is basically an opportunity for the public to provide information on what uh, marine resources or uses exist in that area and what's the best use of that area. Um, considering that people are interested in doing wind energy. That goes through a formal process to lease the area whereby BOEM offers that area up for a developer to um, provide information and bid on a wind turbine project. And then if that bid is successful, they have an opportunity to develop monitoring plans and they do a lot of research, benthic surveys, fishery surveys, bat surveys, wind water surveys. Once all that's done, it gets into the construction and operations phase. That's where a developer identifies what they would like to do, how many turbines, where they're going to be, how they're going to be oriented. And then that goes out to the public for consideration. And once those analyses are done through the National Environmental Policy Act, the public gets an opportunity to weigh in on the analysis and evaluate the impacts. And then if the impacts are determined to, to uh, be sufficiently addressed, or there's greater benefit than impacts, then BOEM could ultimately make the decision to approve that project and then they would subsequently build it. So it takes five to 10 years to get to the project approval phase of which two to three or more is involved in monitoring and scientific data collection and then a year or so of, of information collection and public outreach and engagement and then two years of construction up to and then project could operate for 25 to 30 years. So that's that's the general process. Right now we have one project approved, one project uh, in the final stages, and then six projects are really in that initial stage where the developer identified what they want to do and the public has an opportunity to comment. So that's where we're in right now for five or six projects. Yikes. Talk about a talk about a glut and no shortage of work for anybody uh, directly involved or indirectly involved in, in all the offshore wind business. And yeah, and Doug, thanks so much for that overview. I think it's helpful just to have a general framework for how these how these things take place. You know, many folks are hearing about offshore wind really for the first time in the past few months. And it can be difficult as you hear about notices of intent and construction and operations plans and NEPA review and all these different pieces. And sometimes kind of getting a sense of how they all fit together can be super valuable. So stepping back a little bit again, um, you know, we've talked about kind of the the logistics, right? And how all, how all of this plays out. And of course, you know, we're fish people, you're a fish guy, our our kind of concerns and what we think about are what are the impacts on the resource? What are the potential opportunities that we're going to have as fishermen? 
you know, how do all of these pieces come together in terms of thinking about offshore wind development? And uh, as some listeners might, might be aware, we released our offshore wind policy platform a few months ago, really outlining some of our concerns and our priorities. And one thing that we've really been you know concerned about is we certainly recognize that there is potential for huge fishery benefits right we might see all sorts of black sea bass aggregating around around turbine structures or forage fish you know um hanging out in the in the upper reaches of of the turbine structures and attracting bluefin tuna and other predators uh but at the same time there's a lot that we don't know right we certainly know that there have been studies that have happened uh in the north sea and in europe where there are a couple decades ahead in terms of offshore wind development um but we're generally a little bit concerned that, you know, the policy is really moving forward quickly at a rate that science can't necessarily catch up with. And I'm just wondering, is that a concern that Noah shares? Is that kind of a place that you guys see yourself as helping to contribute as we move forward and kind of fostering, you know, clean energy that is you know, obviously necessary for, for mitigating climate change impacts, but also carries with it its own set of risks? Yeah, I think that's an important point to consider. As, as you noted, Europe has a 20, 30 year head start on us. And so there is some examples that we can learn from Europe. However, we have a very unique situation here with the Gulf Stream and our, our unique fishery resources that don't necessarily allow the European approaches to apply directly. Um, we as an agency are working with international groups, the ICES, uh, International Convention for the I forget the term of that, the project, but we're working. Exploration of the sea. Exploration of the sea. Thank you. There's so many acronyms. I'm a government agent. I should probably know all those acronyms, but sometimes they escape me. That's right up Willie's wheelhouse right there. Alphabet soup. That's that's listed in my skills on LinkedIn. Yeah, Willie, I'll play the role of Tony right here and uh, call you the nerd or something. (laughs) Excellent. Well, we're working with them to find ways to capitalize on the research that that they've conducted and and how we can apply that same research to the U.S. uh, situation. As you know, we're a science-based entity, so we try to make all of our informed decisions based on science. And so, and, and as many of your listeners know, Magnuson requires that we use the best science available. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to partner with a number of agencies and other entities, states, developers, industry groups, um, anybody and everybody who's interested in the marine environment and the marine resources. We're trying to partner with to get as much information as we can on the table as quickly as we can. And so organizations like uh, Rhoda, Rosa, Rosa's the Regional Offshore Science Alliance is really an avenue where a lot of people can come together and share their thoughts about what research they're doing, what research is most important, what data gaps exist, and how do we get a lot of information out there in the most cost-effective, timely way. Uh, as you note, uh, the, the timeline is pretty ambitious, but you know a lot of people are interested in making this work as effectively as possible. And s- groups like that really do a lot. Um, the collaboration between states and federal agencies and um, industry groups like your own are really critical to making that work. The willingness to share what they're doing, what they're concerned about is an important element. We're also partnering with other federal agencies such as BOEM, the Department of Energy, the Sea Grant offices throughout the coast to try to identify research projects and conduct research that gets that information. And 
that's one of the many pages I read on a daily basis is research proposals, trying to get that that scientific information on the table. And so um, while a lot of unknowns remain, there's a lot of really good work being conducted to address some of the key questions that have been raised by various groups, um, recreational, commercial, scientists, academics, you name it. Um, we're, we're open and willing to listen to any ideas that are on the table and try to find ways to address those questions. Right on. And I'm totally with you. You know, it's so important to really have that integrated approach where you're bringing a lot of different folks to the table. And I think you and I are both pretty heavily involved in, in ROSA Responsible Offshore Science Alliance. And that's been a really good forum for really getting a lot of these concerns out in the open and thinking about potential potential ways to address them. And one thing I've been thinking a lot about is trying to take a more uniform approach, right? And I think certainly, you know, it's ironic that in, in many instances, the only part that's uniform is the regulatory process, right? It's all of these steps that you sketched out. But when it comes to, you know, what kind of baseline data are we collecting? Uh, how are we assessing the impacts? What kind of monitoring is going to be in place? A lot of that is happening kind of on a project by project level, which you know, not only makes it really difficult to keep track of, it also might make it challenging to understand, you know, what exactly is the impact and how do we move forward here? Is that kind of a place that, that you guys, you know, that, that NOAA could potentially contribute as well? Yeah, we're, we're doing our best and trying to get that harmonization and maximizing the utility of the research that comes out is, is really important. As, as you know, we have a long-standing survey time series throughout the coast where we take our research vessels and airplanes and, and even higher industry vessels to collect information on a systematic basis. And it's really important that these project-specific monitoring efforts, which are being conducted by developers uh, and maybe even required by states and BOEM, are harmonized with those existing sources. And so we're trying to work with those developers to improve the scientific integrity of the work that they do, make sure that they're done in a, a way that the data are transferable and can be combined with other efforts such that we, we build our base of knowledge. And that's really critical part of this whole effort is, is maximizing the information that we have available to address the short-term, long-term implications of these on a region-wide basis, not just a project-specific basis. Because, you know, even though bluefish might be more present in the southerly uh, wind areas, you know, it has population potential influences throughout the coast. And so they are migratory species, just like striped bass and tunas. And so we need to know how each project interacts with them, but also how the, the region at large and the population at large is affected by some of these changes in the marine environment, whether it's to habitat or the presence of structures or the oceanographic conditions. We need to, to be monitoring on both the small and the region scale and then bringing those efforts together. And so one of the ways that we're doing is participating in ROSA, as you noted, but also we're trying to develop a um, survey mitigation plan with BOEM and the developers that would identify new approaches to addressing some of the limitations of the scientific surveys um, or, and, and how we can integrate some of the regional or project-specific monitoring plans together. And, and so we're really trying to work together to, to bring those elements into a better place and make sure that they fill the data gaps that might be present and um, sharing the data in a uniform way that can be applied across the board. And I got to I got to ask Doug. I mean there's obviously a lot of work out there right that you're talking about in terms of integrating all of this and and you know recalibrating surveys. What about money? 
Uh, is that a concern? Is that a challenge? Is that a place that you guys are kind of thinking about in terms of trying to figure out, you know, are, are there resources available to do all this work? Like, is that, is, is this realistic? Like, you know, setting aside, you know, how many people are going to be looking at six to 800 pages a day and kind of the, the human capacity, um, you know, is there kind of the financial capacity to do a lot of this work? With any big problem comes big investment, obviously. And so we're doing our best with the resources we have, but there are a lot of resources at play. The states are interested. The developers are interested. We're, um, individual research entities are interested. And so there's a lot of opportunities to find funding and provide funding for the research that, that is needed. Um, from a federal government standpoint, we operate with what Congress gives us. So um, if there is more interest in this type of problem, uh, climate change and the impacts to fisheries and the, the habitat, then, then we'll, we'll operate commensurate with that priority. Um, but we're also reaching out to working with developers. For example, New York and New Jersey have a requirement that any wind project set aside some portion of funds to support offshore research uh, on fisheries, wildlife, habitat, etc. And so there's a there's an interest in doing everything we can. It's it's an all hands on deck situation in a lot of ways, and coordinating that effort is is challenge. But um, there's a lot of attention being brought to this very important issue. It's it's affecting all the states along the coast. It's affecting all constituents that that use and are interested and support the marine environment. And so all, all that attention brings some sort of support, and we're trying to do our best with what we got. So, Doug, like I, I kind of recently got into this whole, you know, broader wind discussion, um, like I'd say like four months ago or so. Right. And, and on doing like, you know, my initial background research and reading some of the documents and, you know, going online and reading articles, there's a lot out there. And I'd say it's kind of hard to find, you know, that that, you know, true middle ground of what's fact and what, you know, like I get we don't know what we don't know, but um I think there's a lot of, you know, myth and, uh, you know, doomsday, um, doomsday misinformation out there. Like, could, would you mind like kind of talking about, um, you know, what might be some of the real impacts versus, you know, what some people are claiming stuff like that? Well, as you noted, there's a lot we don't know and we're continuing to learn more each day. Um, I don't want to address an individual or, or the many rumors that we hear on a day-to-day -day basis because um, it it gets daunting to. I'm sure to, some of them hear. are really. I'm sure some of them are really fun though to uh, to deal with. Well, it's like listening to social media. You get a lot of interesting stories if you pay attention to social media, and if you chase those rabbits down the hole, that can get <laughs> ugly. Um, I think the biggest the biggest rumor is that you know that I hear a lot is that. The decisions are already made. Uh, I'll get into the, the question you, you said about the unknowns and what are the big things that may or may not happen. Um, the decisions are already made. They're, they're not. They're, there are so many opportunities to participate in the process and offer input um, over a number of years in a lot of cases from start to finish. And so the perception that it's already been done, it's happening, you're going to put it together is, is I think, the, the biggest misperception. Um, everybody has a voice, everybody has an opportunity. And, and I encourage all of your listeners to, to stay informed. Um, don't get discouraged by the difficulty and overwhelming sense of so many projects going so fast. Um, 
it is possible to contribute and influence decisions, provide your input, provide your knowledge. Um, with respect to a lot of concerns that I've heard from the fishing industry in particular is that these areas are going to be off limits. There's nothing that I've heard from any developer, the Coast Guard or other source that suggests that these areas would be closed to any interested party willing to to weather fish or transit through them or, or whatnot. And so, um, as Willie said earlier, these could be fish aggregating devices. These could be a hotspot for forage fish and the associated predators. They could be a, a hotspot for for species that um, anglers love to target, black sea bass, um, bluefish, what have you, mahi-mahi, you know, anything that loves structure and or the things that uh, live in and amongst structure that, that they'd like to eat. So um, first rumor, it's a done deal. Second rumor, you won't have access. Both of those are wrong. Um, we're doing our best to inform those data gaps, but there's a lot of data gaps we don't know. Some of the things that we don't know are what's what the hydrodynamics are going to do, what are the ocean circulation patterns, and, and what that might mean downstream for the, the fisheries resources. Um, as you all know, the ocean's a dynamic, complicated place, and it's really hard to predict how it's going to respond to whatever, uh, whether it's storms or you know habitat changes or, or 2,000 turbines in the water. Uh, we're trying to understand that. We're working with colleagues such as Rutgers and other universities to model those efforts and, and what that might do because those ocean circulation patterns and stratification of the layers of water and temperature all affect how the, the fisheries are going to respond, whether it's larval distribution or where the fish migrate or where they prefer to to be in terms of thermal habitat. You know, if it's if it's going to change all those dynamics, we have to try to figure that out and understand what that might mean down the road for fisheries and, and your ability to catch those fish or where they're going to be and how they're going to be able to to sustainably um manage and harvest those resources. So, you know, those those things are, are really key. There's there's a lot of other, you know, information that we don't know. How are the fisheries going to react? You know, is this going to be uh, a situation where more anglers are going to be attracted to it? More commercial vessels are going to be attracted to it because, you know, that might they might serve as um, marine protected areas it's a lot it's a lot easier to find a to find a turbine to find a wind farm than to find a wreck out of the middle of nowhere and then figure out how to drift or anchor on it that's true and i mean you don't have to be staring at your gps trying to hone in on the coordinates when you can just point yourself to a turbine and and go full out to until you get there so um but yeah it's it it'll definitely be attracting to both fish and fishermen and how that responds in the longer term is, is, is another unknown. We, yeah, we then, just don't know what the interactions. And then how managers are going to deal with, you know, setting regulations when effort increases amongst the, you know, fish aggregating structures um, is another question. Or if our data is even, if our data collection is even capable of detecting those kinds of changes, right? You know, are you going to see, if you know that in a certain area there's effort, um, that's one thing, but if you know how much of that effort is coming from these, you know, these, these hyper aggregating devices, a different, a different piece of the story. And, and that's like another one of the things, like one of the first, um, you know, big fish impacts that I read about in some of these COPs and whatnot is the impacts to like fishery surveys. So like how, you know, they're going to be able to navigate through the wind area or, um, 
you know, go through the turbines, what have you. Um, like Doug, would you kind of touch on that? Yeah. Well, as you know, we have big boats and they take up a lot of space and it's difficult to maneuver them, particularly when you have gear in the water. And so our safety protocols are not likely to allow us to use those big survey boats within turbine areas. And so, um, that does affect our survey. Uh, it does our f- affect our ability to collect the data we need to make informed decisions about the health of the stocks and what management measures might be necessary to respond to the health of those stocks. And even in addition to the, the marine protected or protected species, we fly a plane to count whales and we can't fly a plane and count whales over a thousand feet just because it's really difficult to see the whales at that altitude. And so a number of our surveys are going to be majorly affected. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to explore different ways to collect the same data. We're collaborating with states and other entities to maybe use smaller vessels, use new technologies such as drone, eDNA, um, acoustic telemetry where you tag a fish and you listen for it. Um, and just for folks listening, eDNA is environmental DNA, right, Doug? So you basically take a water sample and you can see you know, what species is, is in the area. Thank you for calling me on my acronym use. Excellent. It's yes. okay. If, um, you, if you forget an acronym or if you don't explain an acronym, I'm here to help you, buddy. <laughs> I appreciate that very much, my friend. Um, but yeah, we're exploring a, a number of techniques um, and, and we're trying to be creative. And then once we come up with some new ideas, we got to calibrate it to what we've done in the past. And so make sure that the new approaches can be compared with what we've done in the past so we can maintain a 60-year-plus time series of going out there every year, spring and fall, trying to account the fish. And so if, if we can't adapt those new techniques to the old methods, we lose the long-term perspective. And we, we really, as an agency, really want to maintain that. It's the longest time series in the world for marine resource surveys. We're really trying to, to make that work, but we've got to be creative. And so uh, the turbines not only affect where we can go, but it affects the marine resources as well. It changes the habitat type. We don't know if those changes in habitat, like converting sand to rocky bottom for the turbines and the, the scour protection, if that's going to change how the, the species respond. And so you've got a difference between inside and outside of a wind turbine area that we've got to figure into the calculate into the, the, the mix. Um, we've got, we can't do a random stratified survey design, meaning where we pick sampling stations randomly. We've got to pick survey stations outside of the, the wind turbine areas. And so that affects the comparability of inside versus outside and, and at large. So we're working on that. We've got a plan that we're starting to explore uh, and hopefully with a collaboration with a number of people, industry experts, scientists, researchers, others, we're working on it. So a, a lot going on, Doug, you know, obviously this, this, you know, new survey and then calibration is a, is a huge endeavor. And it's what, it's like 47 federally managed stocks or some big, no, I forget what the number is and th- that are kind of going to be affected by this. And I guess just the question is again, back to what I was saying earlier, like, is there time? Like, is this, are you guys going to be ready um, by the time these structures are getting in the water and kind of the current survey, you know, the, the current survey protocol is being affected and kind of how are you, you know, if not, like, does there have to be a prioritization process or kind of how do you, you know, and this is again, one of these challenges of having kind of a process that you're part of, but not, in, you know, in complete control of, uh, you know, how do you kind of, 
try to prioritize what's most critical in, in doing that survey work, you know, even as in real time uh, conditions are going to be changing? That's an excellent question. And that, that's essentially a, a primary challenge that we face collectively, not just my agency, but everybody involved is trying to identify what to do first, given the limited timing. And that's where groups like your own, providing your policy perspectives about what you think is important. Rosa, having a, a forum by which everybody can air what they think is most important, really helps us put our resources where they're needed most. Um, we are trying to step up our efforts and, and increase our our work focused on that transition. And so we've put out a, a number of grants for researchers to fill those data gaps. We've held a number of meetings along with BOEM and other agencies to try to um, identify um, how we can make this transition. And so the good news is that these are going to take a long time to build out to their full capacity. It's not like the 2000 turbines that could be developed will be developed overnight. And so there will be a gradual transition to this, although it's probably faster than, than um, we would normally expect, but we will have some time to start doing it. And there's a lot of really great work done by a lot of organizations that if we can harmonize these efforts and, and share the data in a consistent way, then we can put the collective minds to work and really make the most out of what we got. And that's, that's where I think a lot of our groups are coming together in a similar mindset because we all are in this field. We all got into fisheries in one form or another uh, because we love the marine environment. We want to maximize its utility. We want to protect it and, and make sure it's available for generations. And to the extent that we can, we'll, we'll prioritize what we got. But I think we're, we're making really good progress. We've got an initiative behind us. We've got momentum. We've got the energy and enthusiasm of a lot of great, intelligent people working on this project. Awesome. Yeah. And I think, you know, as you said, it's, it's so important for stakeholders to be part of that conversation too, right? Like thinking about it as a public resource and where do we need to focus our efforts and really looking, looking to the public to provide some input there. And by the same token, I just wanted to touch on data, right? And what data you guys have available and what you use and in particular recreational data, right? And this is something that at ASJ, it's something we talk about all the time, fisheries data. You know, we're a group that understands that recreational fisheries has an impact. Uh, we understand the need for us to be properly accounted for in terms of how many fish we're harvesting and then in terms of being held accountable um, moving forward from there. Of course, with the wind with the wind development, the data is a little bit different, right? The data needs are different and that they're spatial and that they're pretty high resolution. And that's a challenge, right? I think you look at the commercial industry where there's, you know, there's a much higher uh, spatial resolution as to where folks are fishing. You have vessel monitoring systems, you have vessel trip reports. We don't have much and in particular in the private, in the private angling sector, right? So I think a good example right now is my understanding as I sit here in my one bedroom apartment in DC is that there's a a mad dog schoolie bluefin tuna bite happening out the Martha's Vineyard right now, you know, in all of those, in all of those wind lease areas. Um, but very little of any of that data will be captured kind of in typical NOAA surveys and it's nobody's fault. It's just, they were never designed to collect information on, are you fishing, you know, in this, in, in this lease area or not. And so I guess the question is, you know, that, I feel like that information is important. Not only does it give a sense of the economic impact and kind of what kind of displacement could happen, but also for species like bluefin tuna, where a lot of our data are dependent on, on catch and on what's happening 
could really provide information for how those species might change their distribution as a result of turbine construction and wind farms. And so my question, Doug, is for recreational anglers and kind of our kind of the, the data sources that we bring, how can we integrate kind of that knowledge, you know, that ecological knowledge from being on the water kind of more formally into the process of considering siting and considering the specifics of the, of the wind construction? It's an excellent question. And, and I think you captured the history of it very well. Um, we're using data that were created for fishery management purposes for an entirely new use. And so it's the, the data that we collect right now is, is really not sufficient for the area precision that we need for these turbine and wind projects on, on a smaller scale. And so we, we need to think creatively. And, and one of the biggest things that I would advocate is providing input stay engaged. The angling community has an immense amount of knowledge about where fish are, when they are, and, and how they're affected by various elements in the marine environment. And providing that information in whatever form, whether it's through a letter, through membership in organizations that can represent fishing interests in a, in a bigger scale, and, and advocating that those groups or those individuals uh, present or share that information, uh, attending public hearings and making it known that certain locations are very important to certain species. All of that, all of those elements are critical to making informed decisions and making sure that we develop these offshore wind programs in a responsible manner to minimize the impacts to not only the fishing community at large, but also to the resources and the habitat. And so I, I would definitely encourage your listeners to engage. There's fishery liaisons for most of these projects that go out to the community on the docks and ask questions. There's public hearings that are located throughout the coast that you can provide an opportunity. There's letters that you can submit during the scoping period uh, where the BOEM is, is asking for your input to really make a difference in where and when and how these projects are developed. Um, but I would also advocate, you know, we have to have a broader discussion about area resolution data at large, not only from a wind development, but from a fisheries management, because as Will mentioned earlier, we're right now scrambling to figure out how these might affect fishery resources. But in a couple of years, when some of these projects are actually built, we're gonna to have to respond from a fisheries management side and figure out how to develop sustainable fishing practices in response to what we understand how the fisheries and the fish species have reacted. And so while the data is not collected in a resolution now, we, we should have an open, honest conversation about whether we need to refine those. In the meantime, we're working with other entities to, to find creative solutions, whether that's the large pelagic survey um, that we conduct, the New England Aquarium is conducting a lot of um, surveys and information gathering on where and when those species are, are conducted. States are having that. So if if there's an opportunity to provide comment, talk to an MRIP sampler on the docks, tell them where and when you fish, that would help. Because right now, we all we know is private anglers fished inshore or offshore. But in that offshore realm, we have no idea. Um, so th that's an important element. Sorry, Will, go ahead. No, 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 Doug. So just to like follow up, you know, like we all should get engaged in this, you know, it's these things are happening um, or the, the process is happening rather. Um, and like, let's take the New York bite proposed 
lease sale, for example, like right now we have what a, a month or so left to comment on this this lease area. Um, like, I mean, that's probably the one of the best times for fishermen to get engaged in that process. So, um, if you wouldn't mind, maybe like, you know, what what a good comment would look like, how like what would be most useful for you know yourself and you know people making these decisions. Um, and just, you know, where to find the information and then, uh, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, the, the best advice to provide an effective comment is to be as specific as you can. Make it relevant to the discussion at hand. Read the what the, the agency is asking for. In the context of the New York Bite leases, they're really asking for information on where and when um, is the best place to put these things. And providing your knowledge that the angling community has, has developed over decades of, of fishing is really important to identify areas that maybe turbines shouldn't be placed or the species that might be affected uh, or the times and areas when construction activities should be avoided to minimize impacts to spawning or migration or whatever. Um, sensitive habitats. So for example, if you know a, a sweet spot where there's a good out rock outcropping and that rock outcropping might be in the way of a cable placement. That cable placement may require the moving of those boulders um, that are really critical to your fishing success. So providing that detailed input is really key to making an effective comment. The more specific you can be, the better. Um, comments that are general in nature that say you should or should not do this or I don't agree with this, they're all considered. All comments are considered, but the more specific you can be, the more proactive you can be in terms of recommending solutions, the more helpful. Um, so, for example, a comment might be, you know, black sea bass like this knoll or, or, you know, bluefish migrate between these sand ridges during this month of the year. So, you know, maybe maybe don't level off those sand ridges to, to put a turbine there or you know, make sure that the construction noise doesn't occur during this period when cod are spawning um, because cod are auditory fish and they communicate uh, particularly during spawning season. So all of those elements would maximize the utility and, and, and provide a way forward, which is key. I mean, that the agencies are trying to find ways to, to make these projects happen in a responsible way. And so the more specific your the constituents can be in providing that input, making the uh, information usable, the better. And there's a number of resources. Your second part of the question was there's a number of resources. Um, BOEM has a great resource page uh, that I can share the links with you and you can share with your constituents that outlines what projects are happening where. Um, because these are happening all along the coast, it's really hard to keep track of what's happening and when. BOEM's page has a lot of good information on that. The Mid-Atlantic Fishery Management Council has a monthly update that you can just put your email in and you'll get an update of what projects are happening, what's happening in individual projects, when you can provide comment, um, and, and how you can influence the situation. Um, we have some socioeconomic reports on our webpage for party charter vessels. We are exploring other mechanisms to identify where and when fishing occurs and finding ways to share our scientific survey information as well. So there's a number of things and, and I'll, I'll share the links with you, but um, for those in the mid Atlantic area, I would advocate going to the mid Atlantic council's website, signing up for their 
their monthly wind uh, updates and looking at the ROSA page, Responsible Offshore Science Alliance, uh, they have some good information there. So that's what I would advocate. Pay attention. Um, for anybody inv- involved in the management process, BOEM, the developers, they're all going to be providing updates on various council meetings about what's going on. So, you know, even if you can't make the meeting, you might be able to click the audio recording or at least read the, the materials prepared for that meeting. Check it out. Um, there's a lot of good information on, on the council's website, the commission as well, the Atlantic States Commission um, has a lot of good information that will be presented at those meetings as well. Don't get overwhelmed and intimidated by the amount. Of <laughs> that was going to be my that was going to be my last piece of advice because holy moly, there's a but lot. But the other to thing is, at. part of my job is is reaching out to to the communities, and so I'm doing my best to represent your interests. Happy to chat with anybody who wants to talk about these things, um, talk about fisheries and wind impacts, just or to get an update on it. So I'm. I'm a public servant. I do what I can to to help inform and and learn from the communities that are are interested in fisheries. So um, we also have Maura Kelly, who's our recreational fisheries representative. Um, she and I together communicate fairly frequently, particularly on wind energy and making sure that she's aware of what's going on and I'm aware of what's going on from the recreational community. But reach out to us directly. We're, I mean, that's that's the funnest part of my job is talking to folks in the field learning from what you do because I sit behind a desk. If you're out there fishing, I'm not learning what you're learning and, and enjoying uh, catching the fish. I'm sure that's not excruciating at all hearing about the epic bluefin bite while you're 2000 pages in, but it, it kind of sucks. It's going to put the rest of my day into perspective, but thank you. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, Hey Doug, listen, I mean, this has been hugely informative. I, I have a feeling we're going to have you back on the guidepost because this is a, you know, a fast moving target and a rapidly evolving one. I think there are going to be a lot of opportunities for the, the recreational community to, you know, be, be constructive and, and hopefully help steer this development in a direction that really, you know, maintains a lot of our fishing opportunities, maybe enhances some, um, and really helps to avoid any of these really damaging impacts. As you said, though, there's a lot that remains to be learned. Um, there's a lot of scientific needs and we need to make sure we've got some good baseline data. We know, you know, how to keep track of what's going on across these projects as well. And, you know, obviously, um, glad to hear that these are all very much on your radar and, uh, you know, wish you continued luck in your, uh, quest to, uh, crack the thousand page a day mark over there. Um, but you know, in the interim, um, glad to have you as a resource, glad that other folks can count on you as a resource as well. And thanks so much for stopping by the guidepost. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it. It's always a pleasure. And, um, please let me know what you need and I'm happy to provide it. 